Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest today is the one and only Rich Velotis. Rich is uh, a Brooklyn-born lead pastor of New Life Fellowship, a large multi-racial church with more than, count this, 70 five countries represented in Elmhurst, Queens. Rich holds a Master of Divinity degree from Alliance Theological Seminary. And um, he has been, um, I mean, I I would say a a growing leader um, in the evangelical church, especially when it comes to conversations surrounding race and and conversations surrounding uh, uh, spiritual formation. He's the author of A Deeply Formed Life. And we talk about that towards the end of this podcast where... um, uh, our our spiritual formation should be the primary focus of our our ministry as as Christian leaders. Like our ministry should flow out of um, our walk with God. And what I love about the book is he talks both about our inner kind of spiritual formation and spiritual practices. Okay, like spiritual disciplines, but also our public social spiritual life and our concern for things like racial and social justice and so on. Like it is not an either or, but a both and. Our faith is both personal and it is public. And Rich has done a fantastic job uh, promoting that. And uh, I, I've never had an actual conversation with Rich until this this podcast. And this guy's just a delight, super humble, uh, super wise. Just, um, yeah, we talk a lot about uh, uh, talk a lot about race and politics and kind of the last year and a half of ministry. I mean, he's a pastor right there at the epicenter of the pandemic in Queens, New York, and, and we talk about that as well. So, um, yeah, I'm excited for you to check it out. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. This is a listener-supported podcast. If you missed that reference, uh, you can go down to the show notes, click on the link, and support the show for as little as five bucks a month. Without further ado, let's get to know the one and only Pastor Rich Velotis. All right, friends, I'm so excited about this conversation. I am here with, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to say friend, dude. I don't know if I've earned that yet, but I feel like... Yeah, I feel a sense of camaraderie here, uh, but Rich Velotis, uh, man, you just have done so much great work for the kingdom, so I'm super excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking, I'm sure, much valuable time in your busy ministry to talk with us here. Preston, so good to uh, be here with you. I look forward to a good conversation, and the feeling is mutual. Uh, Your ministry and writing has been a, a gift to me and to our local body here, so great to connect. I'm always blown away to hear that, man. Seriously, it's, um, yeah, especially in the world of pandemics and stuff where you, there's a lot of isolation. And I mean, I'm right here. I'm in my basement. Uh, it's unfinished. I can hear my kids doing something up above. And it's like, is anybody out there? You know, it's it's just kind of, it's joyfully strange to hear that people are out there receiving what you're saying. So um, I, what, what, lots of directions we can go, man. Um, I, I, why don't we start with, I mean, you're in New York, you're in Brooklyn, right? Brooklyn? Um, I'm, fr- I'm from Brooklyn. Our church is in Queens, but I, I, oh. I lived the first 34 years of my life in Brooklyn, the last eight years in Queens. Okay. Okay. Um, what's the last year and a half been like, man? I mean, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure challenging and uh, yeah. yeah, let's start there. Well, I mean... Uh, where where we're at in Queens was um, for a number of months the epicenter of the pandemic. Uh, CNN and New York Times and all these uh, news outlets were focusing on Elmhurst, this Elmhurst Hospital, 
where there were many dead bodies out in trucks outside the yeah. hospital because yeah. of that's one mile from where I live uh, and wow. a mile and a half from our church. And so it was incredibly intense because throughout the course of a given day in March, April and May of last year, uh, I heard the sound of sirens uh, from you know the ambulance nonstop uh, in a given day. And so while, while some folks in different parts of the country are wondering if this thing is real, uh, we heard nonstop sirens for wow. weeks on end. Um, and so that was pretty intense um, just in terms of our proximity uh, to that level of pain. And then, of course, uh, there were a couple of months in which I was it felt like I was on the phone every two to three days with someone who had lost a loved one. Uh, you, you know, whether through, uh, you know, whether it's a, a, a mother, a brother, a, a father. So being in those conversations was pretty intense. Uh, and but then after that, uh, you know, there was the whole George Floyd um, uh, situation and which led to a lot of challenges within our congregation because our congregation is incredibly diverse and because of that diversity, there's a lot of people who think very differently on matters of race. And so have a pandemic, you have racial unrest and injustice, you have political hostility. I mean, it's the perfect yeah. storm of nuttiness and craziness. And I was in that whirlwind as a pastor trying to hold the congregation together. Very difficult, very difficult, but um, God has been very gracious to us in the process. Yeah, explain, why don't we start with that? The race conversation, because you are uh, in a, in one of the most ethnically diverse churches I've I've known from a distance. I mean, how many nations and languages are represented in your church? Yeah, we have over seventy five nations represented in our congregation. There are one hundred and twenty three languages spoken in the neighborhood. Uh, Queens, if Queens was to give you a so the size of Queens, if Queens was to be taken as an independent city. Uh, it would probably be the the sixth most populated city in the United States, uh, with Brooklyn being before it. There's about two. There's 2.2 million people who live in Queens, uh, and and 50 percent of Queens is foreign born. So incredibly diverse. It's not just any kind of multi ethnic ministry. It's it's multi ethnic plus the immigrant reality as well, huh. uh, and so it's very complicated uh, yeah. leading through uh, the racial realities of our country. So what, yeah, uh, so being ethnically diverse, so it wasn't like, it's interesting that there's, there were differences of opinion on how to respond to the very sensitive and volatile race conversation. Um, can you, yeah, well, uh, what, I mean, are, are, did you have people on the, I don't even like the fault, like right, left, conservative, liberal categories, oh, yeah. especially with race. It, but you, I mean, I don't know what other categories, but like, well, what were the tensions, I guess, in, that you had to deal with? Well, I'll give you the categories, at least okay. in my context. There, there are uh, at least four kinds of people at New Life. Uh, when, we, when it comes to the conversation on race or the conversation on our nation's history, there's the conservative, the progressive, the grateful immigrant, and the indifferent Christian. And what I mean by that is the conservative Christian in our context and elsewhere, of course, has a hard time naming uh, the sins of our country. The, uh, the progressive has a hard time seeing anything good about uh, this country. The grateful immigrant 
very much aligns ideologically, socially, and politically with the conservative, but it comes from a whole different set of experiences. For example, there have been times where I'm having a meal with someone who immigrated from China, and they'd say, you don't know what it's like to be in a communist country. I'm so grateful to be here. And so they might land in the same place as the conservative, but it's coming from a whole different narrative, a whole different set of experiences. But that's a person within our congregation. And then the fourth person is the person who says, can we just focus on the gospel? Mm -hmm. Can we not just talk? Can we not talk about race and not talk about politics and not talk about the larger issues of our society? Can we just talk about the gospel? Those four people are often sitting on the same row <laughs> at our church, uh, unbeknownst to each other, probably, because if they did know, they probably moved their chair. Uh, <laughs> but that's the reality uh, that I have faced over the past eight years being the lead pastor at this congregation. I've been at New Life for 12 years, mm -hmm. but for the past eight, been the lead pastor. So you can imagine when we're talking politics, when we're talking matters of race and racism, People are all over the spectrum. Yeah. Some people yeah. see, seeing racism as something that's just um, promoted by and, and inflamed by the media. Uh, others who that's the only thing that they see the world through. Uh, immigrants who don't understand the, the nature of racial realities because this is not their experience growing up. Uh, and so those four groups of people, I've had to navigate various spaces with and conversations with uh, around politics and race and uh, incredibly difficult. Yet at the same time, we saw glimpses of God's grace over the past year. In particular, um, throughout when, when the election season came about, uh, besides me doing maybe five or six week sermon series on the gospel, politics and the church, uh, which um, many of my pastor friends said, why are you doing that? And I, and I just decided to dive into it and it and turned out pretty well. Um, we hosted a number of conversations, a few conversations to talk through politics. Okay. And there was one conversation had by, uh, we, we hosted it for as many people wanted to come. And we had someone who was going to be voting for Trump and someone who was going to be voting for Biden. And we said, let's get you both in conversation with each other. Now, this was not my idea. I want to just say that for, that was it, it was one of our pastor's ideas. And I thought bold. it was a terrible idea. Uh, <laughs> and then she said to us, she, she said, well, Rich, can, we should be trying to model something with our values that we can do this. And so I said, all right. And I showed up. It was a Zoom thing. Uh, I was anxious. Some of the meeting was awkward. Uh, but... Uh, the two folks who were interviewed, and, and listen to this in terms of dynamics, the Trump supporter was a Korean American guy, uh, and the Biden supporter was a Puerto Rican guy. Uh, two of them who happened to be elders in our congregation uh, engaged in this conversation. And uh, more than anything, it showed that we can actually have conversations that are shaped by uh, grace and truth and mutual understanding. Uh, and yes, it was awkward at times. And there were times where I just wanted to just, you know, get out of that Zoom conversation. <laughs> but I stayed there, uh, I took deep breaths, but I think we're trying to 
uh, let our, at least our congregation know we can live a different way than what the world is offering us. Yeah, because I, I imagine pastors listening to that, what you did, thinking, oh, no, oh, n- <laughs> that, I could never have done that in my church. And you had this, a similar response, but did you see that conversation in all its messiness um, promote a stronger sense of unity around the gospel across the political divide? Did it raise some more tension or what was the result of it? Uh, yes and no. Uh, so, so for some folks, I, I think for the vast majority of people who participated in it, who were, who were there as observers, uh, saw something beautiful. Uh, that we can have conversations without demonizing one another. We can have good conversations without misrepresenting and having straw man arguments. Mm-hmm. We can have uh, a ways that we are incarnationally being present to one another, asking good questions. And even if the answers are not satisfactory to what we believe is our good answers, we're still going to stay there. For some, for the vast majority of people, they received it. But for others, uh, they had a really hard time with it because again, and this is what makes New Life very challenging, there are some people who think to even vote for Biden was a vote for abortion, a vote for all this stuff. And they could not be in a congregation in which that gray was Mm -hmm. possible. Mm -hmm. It's black and white for that person. And on the other end, there were some people who say to even be in a church in which someone could be okay voting for Donald Trump. I don't know if I can be in this church. Yeah. So some people left. Uh, at, at the beginning of every politics sermon I gave, I would begin by saying, no matter who you vote for, you're welcome in this church. Mm. Uh, mm. At the same time, my hope is that you would listen deeply to why members of our community vote differently and that you would open yourself to the gospel in such a way that challenges perhaps some of your preconceived notions about how the world is supposed to be ordered. That's how I began every sermon. Most people loved it. Some people had a hard time with it, but um, I, I think that's for me, at least, that was the way forward and the way that I was going to go. I, it sounds beautiful to me, man. This is why I've really appreciated um I wish you would write a book on it. I don't know if you have one in the works, but something on either politics or race or whatever. Cause you just, I, and maybe it's because you're nurtured in this kind of context where in a sense, as a pastor, you're not allowed to be super like one sided. Even if you yourself had certain views, like you're pastoring yeah. people who are all over the map and to do that well, you've got to be wise and humble. And, you know, uh, and so I, I love your approach to these questions. Can, can you just pastor us for a few minutes right now? Just, uh, you can take it any direction you want, but how should cr- gospel centered Christians think through questions of uh, politics and race? Those are, it's, and I'm keeping that really broad, but th- those are just those, you know, between CRT yeah. and voting and, the election yeah. and 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 masks and no masks. And there's so many things that are interwoven in in that conversation. Uh, help us to see Jesus in the midst of this chaos. <laughs> yeah, you know, and these are things that I feel very deeply in terms of the anxiety that comes through these conversations: masks or no masks. Yeah, uh, voting this way. Uh, how much should I talk about race? Um, and uh, maybe I can get to it a little later. I had a community. Q&A time this past Sunday where I invited anyone from our congregation who wanted to ask me any question they wanted to on anything related to our finances, our theology, whatever it was, you could ask Pastor Rich a question and I'll be there for an hour to respond. And it was great. Uh, Awkward at times, but great. Uh, But for, for me, I think more than anything in terms of navigating through this particular moment, um, before even 
uh, having theological convictions, I think the best gift that we offer the people we lead in these tumultuous, anxiety-filled moments is our own transformed lives uh, Mm -hmm. and our own non-anxious presence. Uh, I think if we can be a non-anxious presence, deeply listening, not easily triggered, in, in these moments of high anxiety, that within itself is a great witness to the gospel, that there's something deeper at work, something more uh, stable that's keeping us rooted and grounded. So I think for me, before we even talk about theology around this, uh, we, we need to talk about formation. What kind of life uh, do we need to cultivate in order to navigate uh, well these high uh, intense anxiety-filled conversations. So uh, I'm working on myself a lot to be present, present to myself, present to God, present to those who see the world maybe a bit different than I do. But that's probably, I, Preston, that's that's my number one goal week in and week out, day in and day out. How can I be a non-anxious, contemplative presence mm-hmm. uh, offering something of Jesus Uh, to the world around me in moments of high anxiety. Out of that point there, I think to navigate the complexity and the divisiveness and fragmentation, let's just talk politics, for example. I think one of the things that I preached about and uh, reflected a lot on was the amount of enmeshment uh, that people carry when it comes to big issues like politics. Mm-hmm. And being able to name some of that enmeshment goes a long way in at least helping to understand why there's so much resistance, polarization, and anger. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the domino effect of enmeshment, of political enmeshment, often begins with, with this here. Uh, to critique a candidate uh, that I'm pr- supporting is to critique a set of uh, issues that I think are very important. To critique the issues that I think are very important are to critique particular values that I hold dear. Mm-hmm. To critique the values that I hold dear is to critique the, a particular way that I read the Bible. Uh, to critique the particular way that I read the Bible is to critique my vision of God. And to wow. critique my vision of God is to critique me at my deepest center. Yeah. That's the yeah. domino effect. So most people don't see that. Mm. Uh, But I think that's what's happening inside someone. So when someone says something about Biden or Trump or whatever it is, and they get so triggered, Mm -hmm. the question is, why are they so triggered? It's often because they've become so enmeshed with these political figures that they can't separate themselves Mm -hmm. from the people that they're supporting. Mm -hmm. Some of that language has gone a long way for us in our context to name idolatry, uh, to name points of fusion and enmeshment where we don't know where one person ends and the next person begins. Uh, And so I think some of that helpful language uh, from an emotional perspective uh, needs to lead the way even before we talk about theology, Uh, because we can talk about theology to to where blue in the face, Mm -hmm. but if we don't have the emotional capacity and and the interpersonal capacity to remain present, our theology is going to go right out the window. Yeah, that's good. Wow, that's super wise, man. Um, I'm curious about the so the your multi ethnic church. Um, it, it's my, my assumption is correct me if I'm wrong that part of that is simply where you live. Like you live in one of the most ethnically diverse yeah. neighborhoods. But it, are there things that you have done a, as a church, maybe even before you were there or during while you've been there, um, that is further cultivated that. And if so, what are those, those things? Cause that's just, I'm still, I'm just like that, that 
your church is a slice of heaven. It really, I mean, it, 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 that's, and I, and I, I don't want to overly glorify you. are like, Preston, you don't understand. We have our, <laughs> we have yeah. our issues, trust me. But like, just the, just the fact that you have 70 yeah. nations represented is that alone is intrinsically beautiful and very much, um, it's a slice of the kingdom, you know? So what, what are there things you have done besides just being in your neighborhood that has cultivated yeah. that? I, I think one is, Theological in nature, uh, we, we have preached the gospel uh, at New Life. And my predecessor is a guy named Pete Scazzaro. Mm-hmm. Most of your listeners probably know who he is, yeah, and yeah, emotionally yeah, healthy, yeah. spirituality, all that there. Uh, when Pete planted the church in 1987 and when I came in 2008 and has have led the church since 2013, we have had a particular understanding of the gospel that has led to the level of uh, not just diversity, but the kind of work we want to do for justice and reconciliation in the world. Uh, and so we have seen the gospel as more than just an atonement theory. We've seen the gospel as something more than just a postmortem experience. We've seen the gospel as more than just forgiveness of sins. We've seen the gospel as the good news that the kingdom of God has come near in Jesus Christ and that in his life, death, resurrection, and enthronement, the powers of sin and death no longer have the last word. Mm-hmm. And in that process, he's creating a new family. Mm-hmm. This the, the wall of hostility is coming down. So our our articulation of the gospel is one that doesn't make racial matters ancillary or a footnote to this gospel. It's core to what it is. There's a new family that Jesus Christ has created in his death and resurrection. And so at the core of what we see at New Life is a theological foundation that you're going to hear in our sermon in the classes we teach, in the kind of mission that we do. So that's the first thing. The second reason, though, that I think we have what we have, in large part, again, it is the neighborhood. Uh, however, I think the way that we, uh, who's on staff, who's mm-hmm. singing, who's who's in power, uh, who are the people who are making decisions? Uh, is it a diverse community of people that are making decisions? Mm-hmm. Who's preaching? Who's leading worship? Mm-hmm. Uh, what what are the fears and values that we're naming on a regular basis? Uh, and so I, there are plenty of churches that, you know, all the anti-Asian violence that has taken place in the country the last few months that's been reported. Uh, for some churches, they can go weeks without even bringing that up. Yeah. For us, I mean, we cannot e- exist as a community without naming the fears, the pain and the values of the vast majority of people who attend New Life Fellowship. So. Uh, from our theology to our staff to the songs we sing to the fears and values that we name, it's all through that particular lens of multi-ethnic, reconciled, justice-informed ministry. Do, do you think a church that, let's just say, is um, – how do I say it? Like like is, is predominantly, we'll just say white, um, in a neighborhood that is maybe maybe not as diverse as yours but, you know, is not just white – um, a, a church, a, a church that is white, that is largely publicly, uh, uh, I don't want it to sound overly negative, but tone deaf to maybe some yeah. of the social concerns that are affecting people of color. Will, will that help th- that church to remain largely white? I mean, is that, if, if, is there, cause you're talking about a congregation that already is multi-ethnic. So you, that's going to kind of feed into like, man, we, we have to address these because these are discipleship issues that our people are wrestling with. Uh, a church that is largely white might say, well, our people aren't really wrestling with this or half of them are maybe unaware of 
Asian hate crimes or whatever, but like, would you recommend a church that, hey, even if these aren't the immediate discipleship needs of your specific people, they are Mm -hmm. global, they they are are, uh, across the big C church, something that we should talk about. So we need to cultivate that conversation now. Yeah, I I, absolutely. I I think, um, and I actually, there was an article I wrote that Fuller Seminary turned into a course Hmm. on what your predominantly white church can do. Because I would hear that on a regular basis. Yeah. What happens if, you know, I don't have any black folks who live in the neighborhood and, or live in the church or Asian folks here? How do I do it? But I do think churches that recognize that they're more than they, – they, there's a larger body that they're a part of. Yeah. And number one, if we can think beyond our local body to our global historic body – uh, and that will that that would inform the ways we speak about particular things. And what I've discovered, Preston, is uh, even in monocultural churches like what what we're talking about now, uh, there are lots of folks who they're not they're not asking the pastor to be an expert on all matters related to race. Mm-hmm. They're not looking for expertise. What they're looking for is empathy. Hmm. They're looking for uh, someone, a leader is going to get up and say, I don't have all the answers, but this breaks my heart and breaks the heart of God mm-hmm. as well. And we need to be praying. That goes a really long way. So there's a lot of pastors who say, I don't know what to say. I don't know if I should say it at all. I think more than anything, recognizing that we're part of a larger global historic church mm-hmm. and that what is really desired of me as a leader is empathy, not necessarily expertise. Huh. That can go a long way in embodying these values of the kingdom of God, whether or not the context is diverse. That's super good. I, I'm curious. Um, yeah. What, what are some of the challenges? <laughs> pastoring in, in, in such a multi-ethnic church. Yeah. <laughs> what, what are the challenges? Or what are the, I'll, I'll say maybe pros and cons. We can even start with pros. Like what, what are, what are some of the ways that you have been spiritually formed and yeah. uh, pushed further into the presence of God by in the position you're in? And then what are some of the challenges that you look back and say, oh man, we made some mistakes here? Oh yeah. Oh, oh, food, the, the food brings me into the presence of God very quickly. So uh, <laughs> the level of food that you get in a pre-COVID, Preston, in a pre-COVID world, on a Sunday, we have three services. Uh, there, there are probably about uh, 15 to 1800 people who are part of New Life. Okay. Uh, and okay. so uh, to give you a, in terms of the scope of it, after each service for many weeks, there are different rooms with different flavors, oh, whether it's the yeah. Filipino yeah. community, the Indonesian community, the uh, the Puerto Rican, you know, just yeah. Puerto Rican, yeah. whatever it is. So number oh, one, yeah. food has brought me to the presence of God uh, in many occasions, on many occasions. Also, there is there is something about hearing the stories of people um, from different parts of the world and how they come to understand the scriptures in different ways. For example, I remember preaching a, a sermon on Abraham and uh, Genesis 12, and, and the Lord told, tells Abraham to leave his country, leave his family, all that there. Um, I've never had that experience mm-hmm. of having to leave anywhere. I mean, I went from Brooklyn to Queens. That's, <laughs> that's where I went, which is about 20 minutes away from each other. That's That's been my life. Yeah. And I remember someone coming up to me, uh, a, a South Asian immigrant, and said to me, this was the first time that I've heard my story preached uh, huh. because I see myself in Abraham. And I was able to have maybe a 10-minute conversation in the lobby about her own experience. 
And her own story helped me to see a picture of the story of scripture in ways that I would not see otherwise. I think that's the gift of diversity. Mm. We're able to see how people, the, the accents that people put yeah. on scripture, the, the vantage points, the perspectives that I would not have uh, that gives me another glimpse of who God is and the story of scripture. Uh, so uh, those are some of the pros. Uh, and, the, and just, I mean, just the, 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 the richness of cultures, it's been, it's been beautiful. Uh, some of the challenges, well, number one, whenever there's a Christmas service, we usually have three to four different languages that we do readings in. Mm-hmm. Uh, every every year, there's someone who says, how, how come you get, didn't get my language in there? You know, and I'm thinking, <laughs> well, there's 123 languages in this neighborhood, get in line, you know? Uh, and so we're always disappointing someone in this context. There's always someone who's not mm. happy. And there's always someone's story who's not being fully represented the way they would want it to be represented. That's an ongoing tension that I don't know, I don't think there's a, there's a solution to it. When you get this level of people in a room together, someone's story is gonna be highlighted, someone's is not. Yeah. And that's probably one of the greatest challenges, yeah. uh, generally yeah. speaking, of trying to pastor a very diverse congregation. I've often thought about that with, with, with congregations that have some level of diversity. It's like, it's hard to represent it all equally and well. And mm-hmm. it's not it's through no ill intention, typically, you know, it's just like, man, it's just a lot. Of, yeah. In your church, I don't know how you would end up doing that. I mean, there's only so many Sundays in, in the year, but um, um, uh, what would be the most dominant ethnicity in your church? Do you have one or is it like... I would say the, the 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 ethnic breakdown of our congregation I would say is uh, 30% pan Asian and so we're talking about okay. folks from East Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia. Okay. Uh, being being a pastor here has helped me with my geography significantly. <laughs> so I've had to learn where particular countries are, which country hates with which other country. I've learned a lot. Uh, but I would say 30% Pan-Asian. I would say another 30% um, U.S. Latino okay. and okay. Latin American. Okay. And so you figure all most of the countries of Latin America, uh, then you have you know the Caribbean represented in that. Mm-hmm. I would say uh, about 20% uh, African-American, Okay. Uh, I would say um, 10% uh, what would be considered just racially white okay. Uh, okay. and maybe another 5% just, you know, other. Yeah. Uh, but it's pretty, uh, it, it's quite diverse. Yeah. Most yeah. most churches' uh, metrics of, of multi-ethnicity, uh, it's like the 80-20 rule. It's like there's yeah. no, there's not yeah. one ethnic group or racial group that's more than 80%, and they right. call that, that's a multicultural church, multi-ethnic church. Yeah. Uh, it's a bit different in our context. Here, <laughs> yeah, so. do, do you ever run in, especially with since you have so many first-generation immigrants, do you run in with really challenging just cultural tensions? I mean, I'm thinking like honor-shame cultures coming in, or even like, you know, clock time versus event time, you know, people that oh, yeah. are very clock driven and probably a lot of cultures that you have are just like, the clock is really not that relevant to dictating today, you know? And, um, has that been challenging? All of that. Yeah. Uh, all of that. Now the, the challenge in our context is 
those things usually get worked out and the tensions we usually those tensions usually manifest in smaller community groups um not necessarily lots of folks who come to new life know what they're going to get they're going to get mm. a service that's pretty tight uh uh they're go- they're going to get a vast majority of different preachers from the stage so i, I probably preach maybe 30 to 35 sermons a, a year and we have a preaching team uh the one that we have right now is comprised of a uh, a South Asian woman, uh, a Korean woman, uh, a Filipino um, guy, an African-American woman, and uh, a biracial guy, black, white uh, guy. So there's like five of us on this team. I preach the vast majority of it, okay. but they're getting different voices and different experiences. But we see all of that, whether mm-hmm. it's honor, shame, culture, uh, event versus time. Uh, there are tensions all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> and it's... Uh, and that's what I've discovered. Some of these tensions are not going to be solved at all. We just have to do our best to be aware of yeah. them yeah. Uh, and be as gentle as we possibly can with each other. What, what's your, I, didn't, I didn't even ask up front. I should have started with this. But what, what's your ministry journey? Like, what, what Were you raised in a Christian home? And when did you feel the call to go into pastoral ministry? Well, I, I'm 42. Uh, I'll be 42 on Saturday, actually. Uh, but uh, I became a Christian at 19. Um, after, uh, my, my parents would send me to church as a five-year-old in Brooklyn, uh, with my grandparents because it was a Latino Pentecostal church, four hour services, good, good childcare. Uh, and so my parents had four hours to do whatever they want while I was in church. (laughs) And so I would do that for a couple of years and stopped attending, found myself attending again as a 17 year old because I started dating a pastor's daughter, uh, that got me back into church very quickly. (laughs) Uh, and that ended after a couple of years, I went home very depressed, walking from Queens to Brooklyn, Mm. came Mm. home on a August, 1999 Sunday evening to see four of my siblings at this church that I used to attend as a kid. My father coming off of a hangover, my mother cooking in the kitchen. I decide to go to church that day because I'm so broken. I walk into the church that's having a little revival. My father and mother walk in 15 minutes after I do, which was very strange because they never went to church. Hmm. God evidently had told him to follow me to go to church. So he got up and followed me into the church. Preacher got up, preached from Ezekiel 37, and 15 include 15 family members, including myself, said yes to Jesus. Wow. 1999, wow. August, in New York City. From that point on, after being rescued by Jesus, I went to uh, a Christian college to study theology and pastoral ministry. Uh, soon after, heard of an opening of a large church called the Brooklyn Tabernacle mm-hmm. in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, started overseeing their college young adult ministry for a few years. And then as a 28-year-old, found myself at New Life, where I've been for the last now 14 years. So by 28, I came here not looking to be the next lead pastor, Mm -hmm. but found out a year into it that my predecessor was going to be stepping down into another role. And they asked if I would be willing to uh, go through a process to take over. Uh, And so uh, that began as I was 30 years old when that began. And I took over when I was 33. So, and I've been doing it for the last now um, yeah. eight, nine years. You still, you still don't have a gray hair on you, man. You've been, a, you you're know, over forty, and you've been in ministry. I don't. <laughs> you know what? There was one. There was one right here. I, I, I shaved it yesterday. Just one solitary gray hair. I shaved it off. So <laughs> I am jealous, man. The second, the second I wrote a book on sexuality and had my four kids, um, I, I. 
I got a hat on now, but I'm just going great, especially the sides of my beard. I'm like, man, what happened, man? I used to look 29, you know, perpetually, and now I actually look my age. But Well, I did – at one point in my life, I did have curls, really nice, thick curls. All that's gone, so it's okay. – my age is manifested through thinning hair. <laughs> uh, let's talk about your book. Um, I, I, don't, I don't have it in front of me. The title is A, is a, a Transformed Life. Wait. Yeah, the Deeply Formed Life. The Deeply yeah, – yeah, okay. Now, that, that, from what I know, comes out of a really a deep passion uh, of yours for this uh, inner spiritual formation of the Christian leaders, being this is from which yeah. everything flows, which is, seems like a no-brainer, but you obviously it's not. You had to write a book on it, but walk us through what's the gist of that book, and what, what do you hope that people would get out of it? Yeah, and in many respects, it sounds uh, uh, maybe a bit overreaching to say this, but um, I see the deeply formed life as an ambitious uh, paradigm of spiritual formation for this generation. Okay. Uh, because what I am attempting to do in this book, or have attempted to do, is to hold together aspects of spiritual formation that are often compartmentalized and segmented from each other. Uh, and so the book at its core is trying to resist formational compartmentalization. Uh, and through that, there are five particular values that I write about that I suggest are not to be um, separated, they're to be held together. And the five values are contemplative rhythms, racial justice, interior examination, sexual wholeness, and missional presence. Mm. Uh, and so those are the five values that make up our congregation. Uh, they, we call it different names in our own local congregation. So the language I just use now is for a larger audience. Uh, but those five areas, uh, what I write about is the theology of all those areas, mm -hmm. and then various uh, spiritual formation practices so that we can live into them. Uh, it's, it's often the case that some folks say, you know, that racial, ra racial stuff here, that's great for those who are in urban, multi-ethnic environments. And I'm saying, no, it's for everyone. Or they say, you know, the, uh, that interior examination stuff, that's for people who are into like psychology and all that. And I'm saying, no, this is for everyone. Uh, and so it is at its core an ambitious, reframing mm -hmm. of spiritual formation for this generation. I, I like that. It's, I love that, that it's a combination of both kind of internal, more personal stuff, but also more public, public oh, yeah. holiness as well. Right. I mean, and that's, right. I, 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 most people emphasize one or the other and it's, it, it can never, I mean, gosh, I think that's a, to the detriment of our spirituality. It is a both end, not an either or, right? Yeah. Where I, and what the book does is it brackets both of those. So I begin talking about contemplative rhythms. I've been, I've been shaped personally by monasticism. I okay. go to, I go to pray with monks in Boston huh. every year. So I've been, I've been, I've been shaped by traditions that embrace silence and contemplation. At the same time, I became a Christian in a Pentecostal church. So I have a high theology of the Holy Spirit and gifts and the power, all that. Uh, so I'm trying to hold that together, but I have a big contemplative side to me, but at the, but the book ends by focusing on justice and mm -hmm. focusing on, on, uh, ministries of mercy and how we are to publicly, uh, give expression to this gospel. So I am trying to hold together that interpersonal, the institute, uh, individual, as well as the institutional ramifications of what it means to proclaim the gospel and follow Jesus in this world. Mm -hmm. That's good, man. Um, yeah, we. Uh, it, you look around, and it's maybe this is true of every every generation, but it just seems like it seems like more and more leaders, you know, are falling right, or just it makes you. I, I, 
part of it is just sin. I mean, that's a huge part of it. But also, the I just wonder how much of our um, church industrial complex or even celebrity-driven culture has created rhythms, ecclesiological rhythms that war against um, Mm. the spirituality of these kind of, especially high profile or super gifted pastors. You you throw in a type A personality and Enneagram eight, give them a platform, no time for friends, but just ministry, you know, or whatever. And, and no one can really speak into their life. And we create structures that, are only going to exacerbate the sinfulness of the human heart. It seems like, is that, do you, do you see, I mean, uh, an, an increase in leaders kind of falling or is it, is this always the way it is or what's the solution? What, what can we do to minimize that? It's always going to happen, but I mean, it just seems like it's a little much these days, you know? I do think that that kind of celebrity um, impulse mm-hmm. uh, that uh, that's only exacerbated by things like social media uh, people have a, an audience like never before. And I think um, uh, if we're not on guard against that and doing our best to create important boundaries, uh, we can go beyond our limits for sure. We, we can uh, find ourselves uh, not rooted locally, uh, but, ev- but everywhere and nowhere at the same time. Uh, and so I, I have seen, sadly, uh, an increase of that level of uh, whether it's moral failure, whether it's burnout, whether it's disillusionment. Uh, and I think it comes out of many, many things, uh, cultures that uh, uh, em- em- embrace this or enable these things here, mm-hmm. uh, but also comes from a, ki- a particular kind of life that sees our spiritual growth and spiritual formation personally as uh, secondary. Uh, my yeah. the, the invitation that I have as a pastor and the call that I have as a pastor is to say, like Paul said in First Corinthians, we follow me as I follow Christ. That's, those are terrifying words. Uh, at the same time, I think hmm. those are words that we must take very seriously. Uh, and so, the best gift that I offer my congregation, offer the world, is my own transformed self. And I'm not sure if that's often the priority. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why it leads to a lot of unfortunate decisions and the things that you just mentioned. Well, what can, what can churches do to help make that a priority for pastors? Obviously, again, there's always this tension of it's, if you're called to ministry, you need to take it on yourself to make this a priority. But also, what can churches do maybe to give pastors that space? I mean, between like, I don't know, like more, more pure, like intentional sabbaticals or, or, uh, yeah. don't preach as much. I, I mean, are there structures that we can do that would help enable the spiritual formation of our leaders? Yeah. When, when I became a, um, pastor at new life, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that I came into a culture that had worked a lot of this out already in my predecessor. Yeah. And so I never forget when I was, uh, interviewed for the position as a 28 year old, uh, my predecessor, Pete, said to me, now, Rich, the only way you'll get fired here is if you don't take time to keep Sabbath, a 24-hour mm. period where you're not doing any work. And I thought, man, I think I heard that wrong. You know, uh, He said, you'll get fired if you don't keep Sabbath. And he said, the reason is because you won't have the kind of life with God that will sustain the work you're doing for God. And that's the kind of culture I stepped into, mm. one that took very seriously 
the rhythms and the life of the pastor that I could only give what I've received mm. and I'm nurturing. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, sabbaticals, I mean, our, our pastors get sabbaticals every seven years. Uh, we expect our staff and our pastors to keep a weekly Sabbath. We inspect it. We ask questions around it. When it's time for annual staff evaluations, one of the questions we're asking is not how much XYZ did you produce, but how's your soul? Mm. Uh, did you give the kind your soul the kind of attention that it needed? That's what we're measuring. And I think if that's what we're measuring, that's the culture that we're trying to establish, it creates an environment, number one, where people want to work at, number one, but number two, uh, my soul gets exactly what it needs for the intense kind of work that I'm engaged in. So, uh, but that's some of the ways that we try to create a structure and a system around this kind of health uh, for the sake of ongoing leadership. Mm. That's super good. Um, we need more of that. And I, I, we need more of it, but I, I feel like I, I am seeing more and more people, especially younger leaders. They seem to be, uh, again, it's hard to, I don't have a statistic, but they seem to be a little more self-aware of that. There does seem to be, um, maybe because we've seen kind of some yeah. of the fallout with, uh, kind of, you know, work 80 hours a week in ministry and you don't have any real friends and half your kids hate you because you prioritize ministry over them, you know? I tell people I've never met, <laughs> I've never met a, a pastor or a Christian leader on the other side of ministry, you know, in his mid sixties, late sixties, early seventies to say, you know, looking back, I wish I had spent less time with my family and more time doing right. ministry. I, that's my one regret. You know, I did too much family time and not enough ministry. I, I've never met that person ever. I haven't either. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I, yeah, I don't know. And um, I, and you know what? And I know my tendency I mean, if it wasn't for the strength of my wife, honestly, who says, we are going to go on vacation, yeah. we are yeah. going to do this. <laughs> I mean, I could very easily put my head down yeah. and work and work. And I know myself, I know my false self, I know all the, the weaknesses I have. And I thank God for a, a sh incredibly strong wife who says, no, we're going to yeah. do these things here. So, but I get it. I'd never heard a pastor in his sixties or seventies or her sixties and seventies yeah. say, I wish yeah. I had more time. Yeah. I wish I didn't yeah. have more time with my kids. My wife is the exact same way. Cause I, yeah, I, I could fall into just, I could easily, if I was single or whatever, I'd be just be a workaholic, you know, or if yeah. I had a wife that just kind of didn't address it, but she's like, no, like we, I, I, I mean, I don't know. I hardly ever work on like a Saturday uh, or even a Sunday, um, although sometimes you know, depending on my church involvement, Sunday could be a volunteer yeah. work day. You know, um, yeah, it's and in vacations too. Like when we didn't have any money, it was tent camping. You know, somewhere just going somewhere. And and uh, now since I rack up sky miles and stuff, we'll go on a trip somewhere because we can almost go for free. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's uh, and I and I man, I'm so thankful for that. You know, because. Um, yeah, I probably would have destroyed myself by now if I didn't have that accountability. Well, whether it's yeah. a spouse or a, a leadership team, I don't think you need to be married to have that, but just to have people that are caring for your holistic spiritual formation, you know, it's huge. Um, one more question, and then I'll let you go, Rich. Um, how, how can we're, we're kind of coming out of the pandemic a little bit? We've the church has been through tumultuous times, uh, just kind of rethinking even its church rhythms and having to do ministry through Zoom and all these different avenues. Um, we've had many racial tensions, political upheaval, and that just seems to keep lingering on. How can we, how should Christian leaders today reflect on the last year, year and a half 
and mm. how should we move forward um, in a way where we can learn from the past and and maybe instill different rhythms or I don't know, like what are some things we should weed out and and re, or what are some things we should establish as we move forward in a really di- we're in a different world now, you know? Yeah. You know, I, I think about this question a lot and uh, one of the, uh, I don't know if it's possible solutions, but directions that I tend to go in. The last year has revealed the inner fragmentation and the outer fragmentation in, in ways that I don't know if we've seen it on this level, mm-hmm. uh, how everything converged politically, racially, global pandemic, economics. I mean, across the board, there was a level of intensity to the the fractures. Uh, and I, I think what Christians and churches must begin to intentionally cultivate even more so is how do I remain close to myself and remain close to others in times of high anxiety? Mm. Uh, mm. For me, that's the language of differentiation out of family systems theory. And I think that is one of the most important areas of growth and learning for the church. What does it mean to stay close to myself? How do I pay attention to what's happening? Even you see what's happening now, over half a million people died and uh, lots of people have not taken the time to grieve. Mm. Uh, And part of it is because of lack of proximity. Part of it is because of lack of good theology around grief. But most folks don't know how to remain present to themselves and close to themselves. I think we have an invitation by God to teach us what does it mean to remain close to ourselves in, in all of that means, but at the same time remaining close to one another, especially in times of high anxiety. And so I think what we desperately need are cultures of curiosity, cultures of self, uh, you know, compassion, uh, cultures where we're able to navigate the anxiety that courses through our body and do it well so as to be non-anxious presence in the world. Uh, I think that's ultimately what the world needs, a group of non-anxious, prayerful, loving people uh, who are going to uh, demonstrate this good news with their lives, not just with their words. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think it's it's part of that is how do I remain close to myself and remain close to others, uh, especially in this time of high anxiety? So it's something I've been thinking about a lot, writing a lot about. Uh, and trying to figure out within my own community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so yeah. I mentioned that one of the ways I try to do that is this past Sunday, we hosted a community Q&A time where I said, whoever is in our church, you could come and ask whatever question you want of me. My preaching, uh, why why haven't we opened yet for in-person worship? Uh talk uh, Critical race theory, uh, whatever you want to talk about you can ask the question. We're going to do it for an hour because I'm not crazy. I'm not going for two. I'm going for one hour. I will do it for one. And uh, I was anxious. I was nervous. I was wondering, this is going to be a train wreck. It's the first time we've ever done something like this. I took a deep breath. I logged on to Zoom. Uh, you know, maybe 60 people showed up or so. I was like, thank God it's not three, 600. <laughs> and, um, and they asked great questions. What were some about, of the questions? I'm curious. Oh, oh. Uh, how's this one? Uh, you know, after the uh, after George Floyd's killing, uh, we, you know, I participated in a prayer protest. Uh, I was, you know, I opened up the prayer protest, 
and uh, with a, a kind of a spoken word kind of a prayer. Uh, Pastor Rich, why are you holding Black Lives Matter signs? And not only why are you holding Black Lives Matter signs, Pastor Rich, I saw a picture of your six-year-old son holding a Black Lives Matter sign as well. So now they're bringing my son into this here. Why is your son uh, holding that? So that was one I had to mm. uh, respond to. A lot of it had to do about uh, racism. Mm -hmm. And again, you would think multicultural, yeah. diverse, we're all on the same page. Not a chance. <laughs> uh, and so the vast majority of it was, why? when are we going back to in-person worship? And why has it taken it so long? And then why are you saying Black Lives Matter? So for an hour, there was a mm -hmm. bunch of those questions here and there. Uh, I was I was anticipating, and I didn't get it this time around, uh, questions about the LGBTQ community right, and yeah. what's your right, stance yeah. there. We usually get that at our newcomer uh, gatherings, which we have tonight, where we have an open Q&A forum for those who are new and they want to ask anything of us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I didn't get that. Uh, we usually get those in other contexts, but uh, but those were a few of the questions that came down this past Sunday over an hour. <laughs> yeah, I, first but, of all, hats but, off. Yeah, hats yeah, off to you for doing that. I, th I think giving model something, you know, press. I'm trying to say we can do. We can be an unanxious presence. And yeah. yes, my heart was racing on the inside, <laughs> but I yeah. showed up, and um, we're trying to model something here, which is very difficult. I th I think I I I'm gonna assume knowing nothing about your congregation that they appreciated that you made yourself available to that. That just says a lot that you want to hear from them and to open yourself up like that. That's 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 courageous. It really it's humble and it's courageous. And I think it um, it just established it breaks down that kind of barrier too that between leader and congregation and um, mm -hmm. yeah I because part of my a huge part of my speaking ministry is it's always Q and A man and. And um, yeah. I, I always encourage pastors, you guys got to do more. It's scary. It's frightening. You mess up. You, you say something wrong. You get questions that are, you know, you know, why do you, you know, hate gay people so much? Or why do you hate the Bible so much? I'll get like a, a weird, like, you know, far left, far right kind of assumption about who I am or whatever. It's like, first of all, premise of the question is even <laughs> humanizing. But, um, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, but it's, I, I. We, we live in a culture where most informational avenues, the people have a chance to respond, whether it's YouTube or even a news article or Facebook. Whatever. So church is one of the last stands where there's somebody talking and there's no like feet, there's no like response. And I don't know what that should look like in a healthy way, but I think exactly what you did, like opening up opportunities for people to do that. I think it's awesome, man. Yeah. And I'd say, I think I gained a whole lot more folks who say I trust rich i believe in what this church is about even if it was even if it was a train wreck and it was super awkward which i'm so glad it wasn't i think opening up that space communicate communicated something of value to those folks and they are articulated that during the meeting absolutely absolutely well rich thanks so much for being on the show again the book is deep a deeply formed life uh, where can people find you? you you got a website right or what, what yeah, if they went to richvelotus.com, uh, they could learn there. And then I'm usually uh, try testing out stuff for sermons and articles and books on Twitter. Uh, so at Rich Velotis or uh, on Instagram at Rich Velotis as well. All right. Thanks so much for being on Theology and Rob, bro. Appreciate it. Thanks, Preston. Thanks, Preston.